Well, hey, if you guys would, go ahead and grab your, your scripture and maybe a piece of paper and notepad or a journal uh, to take notes in and a cup of coffee and uh, nestle up on the couch as we dive into today's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we kicked off just a few weeks ago uh, a series over the gospel of Matthew. And if you're maybe new to, to checking out like the, the book of Matthew or the gospel according to Matthew, I want to just give you a quick rundown of the theme of this entire book. Uh, Really, Matthew is a a Jewish tax collector who became a disciple or a follower of Jesus who decided to write a letter or an account uh, to the Jewish people with one goal in mind. He was trying to prove that Jesus really is the king. Uh, And what I love about Matthew is that Matthew is really just kind of like this mini Bible um, at, at the start of the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. But because it's written to a Jewish audience, Matthew does an incredible job of taking Old Testament text, pulling it in to, to validate the lordship or the kingship of Jesus Christ. But on top of that, we've got some amazing things that we're going to learn throughout this series uh, and, and really just dive into from the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Don't repay evil for evil, as well as some incredible things uh, as we get towards the latter part, uh, just about the return of Christ that is written in the book of Matthew. And so it's one of my, if not my favorite book in the entire scripture. Uh, And so I'm excited for us to continue. Now, uh, today we're going to be picking up right where we left off, which is in Matthew chapter 2. And where we left off on Christmas Eve was we looked at how the three wise men or the wise men came to visit Jesus and they brought with him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold speaking to the kingship of Jesus, frankincense, which was used by the priest as incense in the tabernacle and in the temple. It speaks to the uh, Jesus being our high priest, and then myrrh, which was used for sacrifice. It speaks to Jesus being our ultimate sacrifice. Now, I bring that up because that's important for where we're going to go in just a moment as we continue in this text. And so here we are, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. And then um, next week, we're going to pick up the pace just a little bit to where we're not in a chapter for multiple weeks. But it says this, now when they uh, had departed, the they there is the wise men. When the wise men departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take this child or take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And that prophecy right there came from the book of Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, which says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Now, what I think is interesting is Joseph and Mary were not rich people. And and this was the second vision or the second dream that that Joseph had whenever um, around the birth or the life, the ministry, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. And, and so Joseph gets this dream, and at least this time he's like, well, you know, not really questioning the angel. He just gets up, and he's obedient to doing what the angel says. And, and so he takes Mary, he takes Jesus, who was probably a toddler at this point, loads them up, and then at night they then leave, and they leave Bethlehem, and they are making their journey, which was not a quick journey. It would have been uh, several weeks, if not like a month long, for them to get to Egypt. Now, what I think is interesting is they went to Egypt not knowing anyone, not having a job secured, not uh, having clout or even a Jewish community in Egypt. They actually went to Egypt, which was a very hostile territory towards the Jewish people. They went to Egypt out of obedience to what the Lord had said. So how did they live? How did they live in Egypt? And I think this is what I find interesting is that God provided a way through the wise men. Whenever they brought these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they would have been able to sell that for more than enough money to be able to live off while they were sojourners in Egypt, while they were fleeing from persecution or fleeing uh, from potential death by King Herod in Egypt. I, I say that to say this for someone, especially as we come into the year 2024, right? Uh, many of us are crying out. We want to hear the voice of God. Many of us maybe have heard the voice of God. Maybe for some of us, God has told us to go a particular direction or to change a job or to uh, do this in faith, and it doesn't make sense. See, for Joseph, in the natural, it would not have made any sense for him to take Mary and Jesus and to go to Egypt. But what I love about God and the God that we serve is anytime God tells you to do something, he's going to provide a way to make it happen. Anytime God calls you to something, he's going to provide a way to make it happen. And that's exactly what took place right here with Joseph, is the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph, said, this is what God says, do this, and I'm going to provide a way, oh, better yet, I've already provided a way by the gifts that you receive from these wise men out in the east. If God has called you to it, God is going to see you through it. If God has called you to it, God is going to provide you the resources necessary for you to fulfill what he's called you to do. Which then leads me to this other thing. Why on earth would they go to Egypt? I mean, Egypt was a very hostile place towards the Jewish people. It was, it was not known for Jewish people to travel or to even be in Egypt because of the hostility and the tension that was there during the time of Christ. And I think that may have been part of the reason is because it would have been the last place that King Herod would have been looking for, baby Jesus, right? But then I also think about the significance in Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, Out of Egypt I will call my son, right? Out of Egypt I will call my son. The significance with the place of Egypt in the history of the Jewish faith. See, Egypt was a, a, a place that at one time was very prosperous and, and uh, was, was known as the superpower of the world. And, and as we know, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and his 12th son was Joseph. And Joseph, and you can go all the way back to Genesis and read this, Joseph was then sold by his brothers into slavery and then brought into Egypt. But God had a plan, and God protected 
rejected Joseph. And what God did is he took Joseph, who was sold into slavery, and raised him up to be the governor of Egypt, having the second uh, seat of authority in the entire land, was given to this Hebrew person. And whenever famine came, uh, Joseph was able to help out his entire family. And what happened is that caused all of the Jewish people to start flocking and moving and transitioning into Egypt. And so Egypt started to uh, being, become, uh, excuse me, Egypt started to be filled with Hebrew people. And then after that, Pharaoh passed away and the next one took over. Instead of there being peace among the Hebrew people and the Egyptians, there became oppression. There became violence. There became torture. There became slavery. And for 430 years, the Hebrew people sat there in bondage and in slavery, crying out for God to raise up a deliverer. God, send us a deliverer. Send us a deliverer to, to deliver us out of this bondage. And 430 years later, a Hebrew man by the name of Moses walked before Pharaoh, and he said the very famous lines, Let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And this happened two times, three times, five times, seven times, until the tenth time where the plagues were sent upon Egypt. And he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he let the people go. See, what I think is significant about this is the people in that day were crying out for a deliverer to set them free of their physical oppression and their physical bondage. But see, Moses was just a type of Jesus. He was just a foreshadow of Jesus. And Jesus had to go back to Egypt to remind people that not only is he going to set us free of our physical bondage, but he's going to set us free from our eternal bondage as well. He's going to pave a way of salvation, not just for the Jewish people, but for all People And so Jesus had to go back to Egypt to fulfill what the prophets had said, but I also believe to prophetically speak that I am greater than Moses. I am greater than Joshua. I am greater than King David. I am the Messiah, the one that is going to fulfill everything that these men and women could not. Now, I think for some of us is sometimes God allows us to leave a season of comfort to bring us to an Egypt season. And I'm not talking about us going back into our bondage or us going back into sin. What I'm talking about is God will sometimes allow us to be put in an environment that allows memories to happen or recreate scenarios so that God can heal with brokenness inside of our hearts where God can get to a root of an issue that maybe has been in your generational line, or where God can get to a root of an issue that's been in your past that you've just been hiding in a closet for so long. I think about Jesus and the Apostle Peter, really before he was the Apostle Peter. Like Jesus and Peter, Peter was like gung-ho, Jesus, I'm going to defend you. I'm not going to go down, right? And what happened to Peter whenever Jesus was put on trial? He denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said. 
And Peter felt horrible and, and wicked in himself, and he did like many of us would do, and he went back to his Egypt. See, his Egypt was being a fisherman. His Egypt was going back to what I've always known. Let me just do this occupational job because my life doesn't have meaning anymore. And that's where Jesus shows up and calls Peter while he's fishing to come and have breakfast on the seashore with him. And he cooks him breakfast, catch this, over a charcoal fire. There's only two times in all of the Bible that a charcoal fire is mentioned. One, whenever Peter is denying Jesus three times. And the second, whenever Jesus is cooking him breakfast and he turns to him three times and says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you agape? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. See, what God allowed to happen through Peter was for him to go back to that moment and Jesus to step in, recreate that moment, and bring healing and restoration where he thought that he had lost it. And sometimes God allows you and I to go through hard seasons, difficult seasons, where we feel like, God, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't understand the, the, the point of this right here. God, I don't understand why you're bringing me back to this moment, this, this place of hurt, this place of torment, this place of, like, I, God, why? Maybe, maybe it's because Jesus is trying to bring something that happened out so that he can bring healing to your heart and a healing that will last through eternity because of the blood of Jesus. Now it continues on, and this is where the story gets a little bit dark, so to speak, but um, he continues on. Let's dive into verses 16 through 18. He says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. This was, or then uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud limitation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is a horrific thing that happened. King Herod, um, King Herod went and ordered the execution of these babies. This is sad this is horrific, and, and this is something, guys, that, that honestly should detest us and, and, and make us angry and upset that was taking place. Catch this, though. Herod was an interesting guy. Herod was an arrogant guy. So arrogant um, that he thought he could outsmart God. He, hear me out with this, all right? Um, Herod was not supposed to be king. He wasn't a true king. See, Herod was known as Herod the Great. He was a great architect, a great builder in Jerusalem. And, and even if you go to Jerusalem today and you visit the Western Wall, you're going to see that there, this massive wall that's it's been excavated, and it's the most holy site in, in uh, Judaism right now, is the Western Wall. King Herod built that, and it was the outer wall um, kind of surrounding the, 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 the temple or the base, so to speak, surrounding the temple, which was the Holy of Holies, right? 
And so because Herod was this great architect and he had a lot of influence and favor, whenever Rome came in, they gave him kingship over all of Judea. Now, he wasn't a real king. He was essentially an appointed king, which I would equate to like an appointed governor over a region, but he still had to submit and he still had to honor uh, Caesar's wishes and decrees and demands. And so Herod could do whatever he wanted in his kingdom as long as it did not go against or come against the Roman Empire. And and so um, in the middle of all of this, Herod is getting all of this glory. He's getting all of this praise. He's got servants and this palace and great things that are happening uh, in the life of Herod. Uh, He goes on a journey and then he finds out, or let me put it this way, he thinks that his wife ended up cheating on him with another man. And, And so Herod, getting frustrated whenever he arrives, he imprisons her and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to execute you. But he's like, no, I can't do that. I love you too much. And, and so he doesn't execute her, even though she denies the whole thing. And then Herod goes off again, and then he catches word again that she had committed another affair. And so what happened this time is whenever Herod returned, Herod took his wife, executed his wife, executed her sister, executed her brother, executed her mother-in-law, executed um, um, executed her mother, his mother-in-law, executed his father-in-law, and executed his two sons from a previous relationship um, that, that was not even in, involved. And so like Herod was a ruthless, ruthless man. And even just so you get the, the picture of how insane this guy was, um, even after that, after he executed his wife, he had her embalmed in honey and, and elevated in this particular hall in uh, Herod's, uh, the Herodian mansion, so where he can go and look at her embalmed body and as, as Josephus says, gaze upon her beauty that the honey brought out. This guy, look, this is history, man. This guy was insane, all right? This guy was insane. But here's the thing about Herod. Herod was Jewish, which meant Herod knew the scriptures. Herod read the scriptures. Herod knew all about a coming Messiah who was going to be the king of Israel. Herod knew all about a baby that was going to be born in Bethlehem. And even though he knew all about that, even though he knew the ancient text, even though he he read into it and he was well-educated and he was smart, when the wise men showed up, Herod thought that he could take the scripture and twist it and outsmart God. How often do we do that in our lives? Where we, we look at this text, we see what it says, it's black and white, and it's, I mean, it's very direct about a lot of stuff. It's very clear on sin. It's very clear on um, what, is, what is right and what is wrong. And, and, and listen, maybe you're even listening to this and you're not even a Christian today. You have a moral compass inside of you that you know the difference between right and wrong. Every one of us, we have a moral compass excluding, like, let's just take out Christianity for a moment. We know it's wrong to see innocent children die, right? We know it's wrong to go and hurt the elderly. We know it's wrong to slander other people. Even though sometimes we may want to, we know while we're doing it, it's still wrong. This guy Even though he knew right from wrong, even though he knew the text, he thought that he could outsmart God. How many of us do that? 
How many of us do that in our lives where we think that we can just, God, we got this. God, I, I know what your Bible says. I, I know what your word says. I know you've spoken to me, but nah, I got this, God. I can, I'm going to handle it my way. I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to do things my way. And in the middle of us trying to do things our way, what happens? People get hurt. Pain happens. And suffering happens. Which is exactly what took place here. There was suffering because of King Herod's decision. Suffering in Bethlehem and in the known area because he went around and he executed babies and toddlers, two years and younger, trying to outsmart God. Suffering was brought upon the people. Could you just imagine that? Do you want to talk about a dark night? You want to talk about a painful night? Because of one man and his arrogance of not recognizing who Jesus was. Meanwhile, Jesus had already fled to Egypt. God was protecting the promised one, the Messiah. Listen, I, I, I want to say this for, for just a moment. Sometimes suffering happens, and I don't know why suffering happens. Sometimes it, it, it's painful, and it hurts really, really bad. Sometimes God allows us to go through things that doesn't make any sense while we're going through it. And sometimes it's months, years, even decades later before we realize why God allowed me to go through that. I, I, I think about whenever I fell off the cliff down in Mexico. For those that don't know, I fell off a cliff in Mexico, broke both arms, both legs, skull, you name it. Not going to get into all that. But I laid there in the hospital bed, and I was angry with God and just crying, why did you let this happen? Was this the enemy? Was this the enemy trying to come against me? And it wasn't until I received a call while in Mexico from a very good friend of mine, David, who said, hey, I'm at this camp right now, and I wanted to let you know that we shared your testimony, and we all prayed for you, and 32 teenagers accepted Christ tonight. And I'm telling you, I just broke down. And then at that point, regardless of how much pain I was in or how crippled I was, which I was at the time, it didn't matter because people were meeting Jesus through my suffering, right? Uh, and then jump forward a, a year, maybe two years later, I was teaching private lessons at my old high school, um, sitting there, and, and I, would, I would teach lessons for 30 minutes, and, um, and there was this one, he was maybe seventh or eighth grader, he came in, and, and he goes, Mr. Moore, why do you have a scar on your wrist? What happened? And not thinking much about it, I was very quick to be like, oh, man, I, I fell off a cliff, and they had to do some surgery, um, and so it's from a, a surgery. And he, he stopped, and he looked at me, dead eye to eye, eye to eye, and he goes, did you fall off a cliff in Mexico? I said, yeah. It's like, were you on a missions trip? I was like, yeah, yeah, I was. It's like, do you know about this? Like, do you know something I don't? Right? And then he leans over. No, he didn't really lean over, but then he, he, he began to tell me, he said, Mr. Moore, whenever you fell off that cliff, the night they shared your testimony, I gave my life to Christ because of your story. Talk about a sobering moment years later after the period of suffering was over. See, sometimes, sometimes suffering just happens and there's nothing we can do about it. It's out of our control. Other times, suffering is caused because of dumb decisions that we've made. 
But what I do know is, is that if we enter into a period of suffering and we suffer well, God will get glory of every bit of suffering that we experience. It could be turned around and used to give him glory and to point people to Jesus. Story continues on in verses 19 through 25 as we wrap up today. It says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord the third time appeared in a dream and said to Joseph, saying, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took child with his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was uh, reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, that was Herod's son. We'll talk more about that later. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went to live in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, He would that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, right there in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it talks about the offshoot of Jesse. Actually, just, just bear with me for just a moment, because I, I think that this is really cool. He says, There should come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, you're probably sitting there, and it's like, Michael, what does that have to do with Nazareth? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the word Nazareth in Hebrew literally means branch. It literally means branch. And what I love about this, it says there's a shoot off the stump of Jesse, and from a branch, uh, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, meaning that there hadn't been a lot that had bared fruit in Nazareth. We'll get to that in just a second. But there was going to come a branch that sprung forth, and that branch is going to bring a lot, a lot of fruit. And do you guys know that if you profess the name of Jesus Christ, you are a piece of the fruit that is still being bared by the branch that came out of Nazareth, which is Jesus Christ. We are a fulfillment of that. We are the fruit in this prophecy that Isaiah gave 700 years before Jesus ever was born into this world. Now, what I love about this is that Nazareth was not a big town. It wasn't a big village. It wasn't a big city. It was maybe two, 300 people tops, and it was essentially blue-collared workers. There was no one famous, no one really educated there. There's farmers and carpenters, stone workers there, and they were kind of known as the outcast in Israel, the outcast of the Galilean region. And even though they were the outcast, Jesus said, that's where I'm going to spend my life growing up. And that's where Jesus lived. And he grew up from being a young boy into being a teenager, into a young adult, into an adult, and eventually starting his ministry around um, 30 years into his life. This is why he is known as Jesus the Nazarene. This is why people said nothing good can come out of Nazareth, who is this man? Here's what I love about this. Jesus cares about the outcast. Jesus grew up with the outcast. And Jesus cares about the outcasts in our society, about the drug addicts, about the people addicted to stuff, about the people who are 
addicted to pornography or prostituting themselves. Jesus cares about the outcast, but just as much as he cares about the outcast, he also cares about the elite. He cares about the people who've got it all together. He cares about the people who've got all the money. Jesus cares, but first and foremost, he's coming from a place that can resonate with a lot of people about him being the outcast, about him being the one that maybe no one would want to talk to or deal with. That's where Jesus came from. As we wrap up today, this is what I want to leave us with. What I find in this text for me is that I can look at this text and I can look at that God speaks God speaks through visions and dreams and angels, but also God speaks through his word. And something that I can find comfort in is that God is still speaking today. He's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me, and maybe some of us, we need to respond in what it is that he's saying or what it is that he's speaking to us through his word. And the, the biggest thing that I think I can take away from this right here is that regardless of where I am today, God knows what he is doing, and I can trust his plan. Wherever you are today, whatever you're going through today, God knows where you are, and you can trust his plan if you listen to his voice and you respond in an act of obedience the same way Joseph did, by being obedient to the voice of the Lord. I want to encourage us all as we go into 2024, listen to his voice. Let's lean in to this time of prayer and fasting as we get into it next week and, and we dive into it. Let's lean in and ask for God to speak. Ask for God to reveal himself. Ask God to give us direction. Ask God to give us comfort in our suffering. And here's what I know is a promise for you and for I is we serve a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. So regardless of what we are going through, we can have comfort knowing that God is with us us, Emmanuel, God with us. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you that despite the snowstorm and the winter weather, we have an opportunity to be able to gather. And Lord, I just pray for every person um, who's watching this live or maybe watching the replay at a later date, just to ask that you would be with them, protect them, God. As we go into 2024, help us to grow in our relationship with you and become more like you and grow with each other, and do something amazing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. City Church, I love you guys, and we will see you next Sunday, live and in person at 11 a.m. Be blessed.